All right, today I'm going to start off with the 135th Psalm. That says, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, O you servants of the Lord. You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into the midst of you, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. He defeated many nations and slew mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your fame, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people, and he will have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion, who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this uh, chance for us to meet here and to gather together and to worship you, to praise you, to learn from your word and to fellowship as fellow Christians and possibly unbelievers who are here to maybe find out about the majesty of what you did through your son. Thank you for these things and thank you for the week behind and all of the blessings that you've just lavished upon us. And uh, we look in anticipation to the week ahead and we ask that you look favorably upon our food and upon our family, upon those who come to visit and who come in and out of our door. And help us to remember each day as we wake to give you praise and each night as we go to bed to thank you for everything you've done for us. Help us to be good and honorable stewards of the time that you've given us and to live our lives appropriately in your presence. Lord God, we love you. We praise you. We want to give you the glory and the honor that you alone are due, especially because of what you've done through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And it's in his name we do pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and do a New Testament reading today. I kind of thought about skipping it simply because it's so windy. And uh, uh, But if, apparently you all can hear my voice is going in that direction. So uh, uh, And the people that were far away have moved closer. So we'll go ahead and do a New Testament reading. And all I do is I we're in the, New, the Old Testament. And uh, at the rate we're going, it'll probably be about uh, 2057 or so before we get into the New Testament. So um, I uh, do read the New Testament uh, uh, each week and I just give a very short analysis. I don't go into any depth at all. It's just something to keep people familiar with uh, what's going on, uh, especially with what Paul wrote because he is the apostle to the Gentiles and he is the one that establishes doctrine for the church. So I started with Romans and we'll go ahead through his epistles and then we'll uh, uh, find other things to do. But uh, Romans 15 is where we are and we're gonna be in the 14th verse and we'll go right through uh, to the 21st verse. Romans 15, 14 says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. He's been writing this 
beautiful discourse to the uh, people in Rome, speaking about the situation between Jews and Gentiles, what the station of the Jewish people are during their time of exile and the, uh, the time of the church age, which is something we're going to look at again today. And um, uh, then he says that um, he knows that the people he's writing to are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, also able to admonish one another. So they're built up in the faith enough where they can actually instruct each other, keep each other on the straight and narrow path. And uh, uh, this implies, this verse, that um, uh, we should be attending church. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say that I can kind of make it on my own and I don't need to attend a church service. But uh, in fact, when we meet together as Christians, we can build each other up. We can admonish each other and we can do these things to the glory of God and to the benefit of each other. So uh, verse 15 goes on, nevertheless, brethren, I have uh, written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace of God given to me, grace given to me by God. Uh, in other words, they are fully capable of having a church, meeting together and uh, uh, edifying each other. But Paul is saying that I've been given this gift by God, which is the instruction, which he didn't know at the time would become our New Testament. And he writes on these points to build these people up. And so they have a knowledge of the matters that he was speaking of. And a good uh, equivalent of that is that we have people that are trained in theology. They go to seminaries or Bible colleges. They're trained in theology in order to be able to instruct others. And it's fine to meet as Christians, but you need to have somebody that has the foundation, which goes all the way back to the beginning. And the theology is derived from this book. Any theology which is not uh, in uh, cohesion with this book it's not something that we want to entertain other than how not to act. And uh, uh, in other words, if you are uh, in a church that teaches uh, uh, from, their, their doctrine comes from a seminary which teaches more on a non-Christian viewpoint, and there are plenty of them out there, then uh, I would turn around and walk away from that church. I would get into a church that uh, holds to their teaching based on this book alone because there has to be a foundation in what we believe. And uh, in, in any precept, it doesn't matter whether it's philosophical or logical, uh, scientific, we have to have a foundation. And the foundation of the Christian faith is found in the Bible. And the reason why is because there is an unseen God according to this book, and he reveals himself in one specific way, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. And we only have one way of understanding who Jesus Christ is, and that's this book. So logically, we cannot know God appropriately without knowing the contents of this wonderful gift that he's given us. Verse 16 says that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And he says this again and again throughout his epistles. I think three, maybe four times explicitly, I am the apostle to the Gentiles, whereas Peter's the apostle to the Jews. He says, um, ministering the gospel of God, that the accept offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The Jewish people had the law. They were selected by God for a specific purpose within God's uh, dispensations. The law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And fulfill it, he did. And so now we trust in what he did on our behalf. And Paul gives us that instruction in here as the apostle to the Gentiles telling us these things. And um, uh, by doing that and by following Paul's precepts, we can be an offering acceptable and holy to God. Verse 17, therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. Because he went down after his conversion, he went down to Arabia. And what is implied in his statement in Galatians that he went to Arabia? He went to the same spot where Moses received the old covenant and there he was trained personally by the Lord. It's not stated explicitly, but we can implicitly infer that, that his time of instruction was something saying, I am doing something new in the world. 
I'm opening up a new avenue, which Paul calls the mystery. He calls certain things in his writings mysteries. What's happening with the Jews right now in the world? What's happening with the church? What's going to happen at the time of the rapture or certain mysteries that he writes about? And that's what he's referring to here. He says, um, therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. Verse 18, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. And then he says some of the things that happened in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round to about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. He is wholly dependent on the gospel of Christ. And in fact, he says in Galatians 6:14, something I noted this week in another context, is that uh, I, may I boast in nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the, the focus of his life, the attention of his eyes, everything surrounding on what Christ did, his work, and when he writes in the book of Romans, he ties the cross and the resurrection in one verse so closely that he talks about them as one unified act. Christ was crucified for our sins. He was raised for our justification. It was one mighty act of God, even though in the stream of time, it was something that happened in a sequence. Paul is saying that this is, this is the work of God, and this is Jesus Christ for benefit of the Jew and for the Gentile. And he says uh, in verse 19, oh, I read that, verse 20, and so I have made it uh, my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. And that was his hope, was to go out and to evangelize and to get people uh, converted into Jesus Christ and to preach where Christ wasn't already being preached. He didn't want to step on anybody else's toes. I've heard preachers in uh, our current you know, age saying the same thing. Well, I don't want to go and step on other people's toes. Well, that's not exactly what Paul is saying because we've got churches that don't have a proper message. We've got churches that don't have a proper preaching of the word. And uh, so for me to have a church next to somebody that isn't doing their job properly is no problem. And uh, of course, then that guy is obviously in the church thinking he's doing it properly. And so there's a conflict between the two of us and maybe we can amicably resolve that. But uh, it, it, in my opinion, it, like when you're having a Bible study, I tell people, bring your Bible. I don't say bring a version of the Bible because we can then gather the, uh, the mindset of the interpreters of that Bible. And you're gonna see differences as you go through that. Now, Darla knows this. When I have a Bible study, she attends them, and uh, uh, somebody will have an NIV, and somebody will have a King James Version, and vice versa, or, or, or different versions. And we'll see what the translator was trying to grasp when he translated these things. And then we can get down into exactly what God was trying to say. And it's the same thing with different denominations. As long as they are holding to the truth of Scripture, we will have different opinions about what's being said, and we need to work together to try to determine which is the truth. Because there is only one truth. God's Word is uh, unified, it is whole, and there is one truth that comes out of this Word. We just get confused. as we. It's a big book. It's hard to grasp. And so we need to be in it. We need to listen to evaluations and reject that which is bad and hold on to that which is good. But in the end, God's word is God's word, and he intends what he intends. And so we need to uh, stand fast when we have the resolve in our heart that we are correct in what we believe, unless we're shown otherwise. Um, he says, um, he quotes the Old Testament here. He says, uh, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. And he's speaking about the message of the Gentiles or of the, the gospel going out to the Gentile world. And he goes to... Uh, Isaiah 52 to tell us this. That's uh, the beginning of the suffering servant passage and it goes all the way through Isaiah 53. That this message of this person who is coming 
and who will be crucified for the sins of the world doesn't just pertain to the people of Israel who received that, but for all people in the world. And that's Paul. He's the one carrying that message. And if, you, if you're not here next week, that's fine. I would hope that you would watch next week's sermon on uh, the video because Paul will be introduced in a way that you may not have ever imagined right from the Old Testament. One other time we uh, actually saw Paul uh, kind of revealed, and that was back at the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, I think it was chapter 19, where Paul is implicitly shown in these, uh, uh, these, this uh, account of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're going to see that next week's sermon as well. And to me, it is one of the most fascinating uh, uh, pictures that I've seen in the Bible yet. Today's is fun. It's a good story. And it, of course, these uh, Old Testament um, uh, Genesis stories are shown, given to show us something else. But when we get to next week's, I was just astonished at what, what was coming out as I was uh, uh, studying it and preparing for this sermon. Um, anyway, there you go. That's uh, Romans uh, 15, 14 through 21. As I said, today is um, Genesis 30, verses 25 through 36, and this is called To Build a Flock. And what I do every week, some of you uh, may not know this that are here for the first time, but before I do the sermon, I always do this day in history. Today is 5 May, and uh, if you know, uh, uh, I'll talk about something here. It's uh, Cinco de Mayo. We'll uh, mention that in a minute. But uh, I usually give a broad panorama of this day in history, and I try to include biblical precepts for it from each uh, point that I make. Today, there won't be many of them, but I'll have a couple of them. In uh, 1494, on this day, Christopher Columbus sighted Jamaica on his second trip, and he named the island Santa Gloria. So uh, I saw something that uh, somebody in the... Uh, previous, uh, in the 20th century, they had typed something about Christopher Columbus calling him the most dubious man of the, uh, of the uh, millennium. And it's because he did great things and yet he was consistently brought back in chains or whatever. But uh, I would rather overlook his faults and look at the great things this guy did. He really did marvelous things and uh, he was a, a true explorer. And he uh, brought, uh, uh, of course, the uh, New World exploration. And uh, uh, without Christopher Columbus, uh, you know, things might have gone on for another 50 or 100 years before somebody decided to get out on the waters and try it. But uh, in God's timing, he sent him forth, and uh, Christopher means the Christ bearer. So uh, he was uh, believed to be of Jewish descent. I don't know if he was a converted Jew to Christianity or not, but uh, he certainly did carry the, the banner and the uh, message of Jesus Christ. Uh, 1798, U.S. Secretary of War William McHenry ordered that the U.S. Constitution be made ready for sea. The frigate was launched on October 21st of the previous year, but it had never put to sea. Now, does anybody know the uh, nickname of the USS Constitution? Very good. Old Ironsides. So uh, uh, that was uh, put to sea on this day back in 1798, and you can still see that in the... Uh, the uh, tall ships parades that they have, uh, New York and uh, places it goes and it's on display. Uh, then in uh, 1821, Napoleon Bonaparte died in exile on the island of St. Helena. Now, one thing about Bonaparte is that uh, during his life, he found it very hard to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, there are people that, uh, you know, you always hear claims about people after they die, they converted to Christianity or they, they had this epiphany or that. And uh, those things can't really be confirmed. But I would hope that he came to accept the deity of Jesus Christ because uh, uh, Paul is very clear. If you call on Jesus as Lord, 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, calling on Jesus as Lord implies that you believe that he is our creator, just as the Bible proclaims. You can't call on a Lord that is not Lord. And so either he is God or he's not God. Jesus Christ is the God-man. So uh, anyway, a question about Bonaparte. Does anybody know what his wife said to him every single time he went out to battle? Don't get blown apart, Bonaparte. All right. Uh, 1862, the Battle of Puebla took place. It is celebrated as Cinco de Mayo, which I never knew this until a year ago because I don't know Spanish very well, but Cinco is five and Mayo is May, so the 5th of May. Anyway, there you go. That uh, was this day in uh, uh, 1862. And then three years later, the 13th Amendment was ratified. Can anybody tell me uh, what the 13th Amendment proclaimed? One of the most important amendments, in my opinion, if not what? At the abolition of slavery. And, uh, I mean, uh, you think about the, the Declaration of Independence having been written and that uh, all men are created equal. And uh, that doesn't mean that all men are created in the same place at the same time and with the same uh, family. It means that we're created on an equal playing field. And despite those beautiful words being written by Thomas Jefferson, it took uh, a war about 600,000 American lives and uh, an act of Congress to actually approve the 13th Amendment and give them their freedom. And it's something that we've struggled with in this nation since. And uh, I, I could not be happier that we saw fit to finally get that injustice done, is that uh, uh, slavery was in fact abolished. And uh, this goes right back to the very first page of the Bible, is that uh, man, God created man in his image. And uh, there's one father that he created, and that was Adam. And that implies that every single human being on earth, regardless of their color and regardless of what language they speak or what nation they're in, came from Adam. He is our first father. And so uh, when we look down on each other in this manner, it diminishes the glory of God because man was created in God's image. Uh, in 1917, and I am not one ever to do this, but I did it because of what we just talked about with the 13th Amendment, I, I never recognize somebody if they're the first black person to go to the Arctic if they weren't the first person to go to the Arctic because it's pointless. There's one person that got to the Arctic first and it doesn't matter if he's black, white, pink, or purple. But as an exception to that today, I uh, will say that Eugene Jacques Ballard became the first African-American aviator when he earned his flying certificate with the uh, French Air Service. And as I said, you know, that was a great achievement. We had come a long way as uh, a nation, and uh, we were acknowledging that people are capable of doing these things. Um, normally, I would only recognize the first aviator, but like I said, that tied in so beautifully with the last one that I, I thought I'd include it. Uh, and then, which ties in exactly with the exact same thing, is 1925. John T. Scopes, a biology teacher in Dayton, Tennessee, was arrested for teaching Darwin's theory of evolution. And uh, no, he shouldn't have been arrested for that. But uh, he probably should have gotten permission in advance and gone through the right uh, channels. But uh, evolution is a theory. It still is to this day. And uh, evolution is the idea behind evolution, not evolution specifically, but the idea behind it is the reason why we have prejudice. It's the reason why we have hatred of other people. And one society feels better than another, or one race feels better than another. It's the concept behind evolution. And I will tell you this, and if you don't believe me, you can go check it out for yourself, or you can just think it through based on what I'm going to tell you. But uh, there is not one, not one bone of evidence for evolution. There's not one. 
And I'll give you an example so that you can think this one through, is that in the 1980s, they found a skeleton and they cataloged it and put it on a shelf. And uh, in 2008, somebody pulled that skeleton out. It was called Ida the Fossil. And they wrote this big, long thing. They said, we have found it. We have found the missing link that proves evolution. Okay? And Ida the Fossil was heralded all over the world in the front of magazines. And evolutionists were just so happy about it. And come to find out that they pulled their foot out of their mouth and realized they were wrong. Okay? And they admitted this is not the missing link. Since then, there has been no missing link that has been introduced after Ida, which tells us that if there's no missing link before Ida, Ida was not the missing link, then there is no missing link. And therefore, once again, evolution is just a theory. And it's a bad theory at that. Man was created. We have the source and the proof for this. And, uh, you know, all we need to do is go back to reason itself. The fact that this palm tree is here tells us that there is a creator. Because if this palm tree wasn't here, and using this as an example of the universe, nothing would be here. Because nothing cannot create something. And something exists. And therefore, because this palm tree is here, there is a creator. He is before his creation, and he is outside of the time and the space and the matter that he created. All proved by Einstein. Those three things happened at one point in time. The fact that they exist at all proves that there's a creator. We have to actually diminish our mental capacity by saying that there is no creator. There is no God. And the Bible says in the 14th Psalm, the first verse, and in the 53rd Psalm, the first verse, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And John T. Scopes was one of these fools that the uh, Bible speaks about. 1942, General Joseph Stilwell learned that the Japanese had cut his railway out of China and was forced to lead his troops into India. Now, this guy Stilwell, I did a little reading up on him before I got here, and uh, he is born in Palatka, Florida. He eventually died of stomach cancer out in uh, uh, California. But uh, he was a great champion of the Chinese people. He was there for many, many years, but he was not a very good commander to his troops. He started out with about 3,000 of them, and he, he literally fought them to death. If they had less than 103 temperature, he called them ready for battle. And uh, when he was done, there were 192 of his men left. So uh, he, uh, he was a tough-as-nails type of uh, general, and uh, right or wrong, he did some pretty marvelous things during the war, but the people that served under him did not like him. So that was uh, 1942. And then in 1945, the Netherlands and Denmark kind of fits right in with uh, evolution and everything else. Uh, they were liberated from Nazi control. And here we had this guy that thought that he was the, the head of the great Aryan race, the master race, and everybody else was subordinate to them. And he could just exterminate people without any uh, care gypsies and Jews and uh, Christians and anybody that didn't fit his master plan. And uh, so finally, uh, the Netherlands and Denmark were liberated from Nazi control on this day, 5 May in 1945. And then uh, on the same day, this is kind of interesting if you've never heard this, on the same day of uh, 1945, um, a Japanese balloon bomb exploded on Gerhardt Mountain in Oregon, and the pregnant women and five of her children were all, were all killed. And um, that was, as I, far as I know, the only deaths on the continental United States uh, during the World War II as a result of the war. And um, what they had done is they had filled up these uh, uh, balloons and they made these machines that were suspended from the balloon and they were filled with all kinds of uh, gasoline and things that would uh, burn. And they sent them up into the trade winds, which were something that was just recently discovered. They figured that they could 
float these things over to America and set America ablaze. And uh, they actually got one of them over here and it killed five people, but or actually six people. But uh, it was kind of an inventive way of waging war before there were ICBMs and stuff, but it didn't pan out. And uh, as you know, the Japanese did lose the war. Uh, 1961, Alan Shepard became the first American. Here I said I, uh, yeah, I, I don't usually include firsts. This is pertaining to America. He was the first American to uh, go into uh, space. It was a 15-minute suborbital flight. Um, once again, he was not the first person in space. Does anybody know who the first person to go into space was? Yuri Gagarin. Very good. He was a Russian. So they whipped us on the uh, original space race. But uh, anyway, once again, I kind of broke my own little code of uh, first people because he was an American. But uh, 1966, this is a fun one. I was two years old at the time. Uh, Willie Mays, he broke the National uh, League record for home runs when he hit his number 512. So a real achievement there. And then a sad one comes right after that 1978. Pete Rose, this great baseball player who's now, uh, you know, been uh, shamed out of uh, everything dealing with the sport. He made his 3,000th major league hit on this day in 1978. And uh, what, a, uh, what an achievement that is. I mean, I, I don't even like sports, and I know that's a real achievement. But uh, he blew it, and he was kicked out of the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame and, uh, you know, all the shame that went along with that. And uh, it's sad because it shows us our own fallen nature as sons of Adam. And there is a remedy to that. There is a remedy to being a fallen son of Adam, and it's called Jesus Christ. And we can move from the federal headship of Adam to the federal headship of Jesus, and we can have new life and a new hope. doesn't mean that we're perfect in this world, but it does mean that we have the hope of perfection that lies ahead because of what Christ did. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Anyway, I'll go ahead and read our uh, text for today. And uh, we'll get right into the sermon and we'll have you out of here in about 45 minutes. Uh, let's see here. This is Genesis 30, verse 25. And we're going to stop at verse 36 today. Um, and it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me go. For you know my service, which I have done for you. And Laban said to him, please stay if I have found favor in your eyes, for I've learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Then he said, name your wages and I will give it. So Jacob said to him, you know how I have served you and how your livestock has been with me. For what I had before, uh, what you have before I came was little and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now when shall I provide for my own house? So he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. I will again feed and keep your flocks. Um, if you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come. When the subject of my wages comes before you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. And Laban said, oh, that it were according to your word. So he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had some white in it and all the brown ones among the lambs and gave them into the hands of his sons. Then he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks.
In 14 years, Jacob had gone from a man with no wife to a man with four wives and 12 children. But the wages that he worked for had gone to pay for the wives and he had nothing left to pay for his own family. In today's story, it's not yet time for him to return home because if it was, God would have ensured that that happened. But if he is going to stay, he's gonna to need to build up his own flocks and his own wealth in order to care for his family. Because he is staying, God must intend for Jacob's life to continue to be a picture of something else. Time and time again, as we've seen through all of these Genesis sermons, God is directing these things, and he's using what happens to show us larger pictures of wondrous things that he will do. In the book of Acts, at the establishment of the church, things started out very small. There were just a few followers who stood out from the rest, and they were separated by God to begin the work. Now already I'm tying in the book of Acts with this particular account, so I want you to think about this while we're going through it and see if you can figure where we're going. It looked as if the odds were against it, this church getting established, this, this little, little body of people that they would go out and proclaim to the whole world. And in Jacob's story, we are going to see hidden pictures of how what seemed improbable was actually the genesis for something great, just as it was at the founding of the church. Our text verse for today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. There are two overall groups of people in the Bible, Jew and Gentile. But there is only one true group of God's people, those who live by faith in God and in his word. They come from both Jew and Gentile, and they are being built into a great flock by the great shepherd. We will see this pictured in today's passage, and so may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. We have three thoughts today. The first is a new agreement. Verse 25, and it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph. Now, I want to bring this in right now before we go on. Last week, we explained the meaning of Joseph's name. And uh, when all of Israel's children were born, only one reason was given. But in the case of Joseph, two reasons were given. Two names were given, or two words were used to describe Joseph's name. One was Asaf, to take something away, and the other was Yosef, to add something. Yosef actually means Joseph. But God is including Joseph's name here for a specific reason. It says, and it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place in my country. It is now the end of the 14 years of labor for which Jacob was indebted to serve for his family. To understand the timing, what we actually have to do is go to the next chapter, chapter 22, and see Laban's, uh, what Jacob says to Laban. He says there, actually chapter 31 is the next chapter. Uh, Thus I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. At the time of this verse then that we're looking at right now, Jacob is 91 years old, and this is the year 2,259 Anno Mundi, or from the creation of the world. This means that in just seven years, Jacob had gone from no wife and no children to a man with four wives and 12 children born to him. He has 11 sons and one daughter. Because he worked the first seven years before getting married in order to get his first wife, all of his family has come in this second seven-year period. Joseph is the last son who is going to be born out of the land of Israel, and 
the full time for the bride price, which is 14 years of labor, is now complete. Jacob wants to return home. He wants to start his life in the land of promise. And he has every right to leave without permission. But as a courtesy, he goes to Laban and he asks for his leave. Verse 26, give me my wages and my children for whom I have served you and let me go. For you know my service, which I have done for you. Again, for the second time, Jacob is being gracious to Laban. Instead of saying that he is taking his wives for which he worked, plus the children, which are his alone, he makes the petition as if everything belonged to Laban and that his service should be sufficient to get him release. In fact, it was the terms that were agreed on that, uh, that they had made between him and Laban, and so no permission is needed at all. Instead, the debt is paid and he could simply pick up and leave. It may be, though, by looking at this verse, that Jacob is actually looking to stay and to work, but he's doing it in a way which will make it look like it's Laban's idea. Verse 27, And Laban said to him, Please stay, if I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. In this verse, we have what is known as an aposiopsis. He says, Please stay, if I have found favor in your eyes. What he is actually saying is, Then stay. An aposiopsis is a figure of speech which is deliberately left unfinished. By doing this, the, the ending is supplied by the imagination of the one hearing it, and it gives the impression of either unwillingness or an inability to continue. A common example of an aposiopsis, which we use all the time, is stop it or else. Or else what? You see, we're leaving it up to the imagination of the hearer. Laban's response here is like, okay, um, if it's not too much trouble, then, and then he explains himself, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Now, the NIV, if any of you read that in some other translations, will say it a little bit differently. It will say, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. The word Laban uses is nahashti, and it means to either observe closely or to practice divination. It's the same word which Joseph is going to use many, many years from now when he tells his brothers that the cup that they stole from him is the one that he used for divination as the vice region of the land of Egypt. It's hard to tell if Laban is claiming that he actually used divination or that if he merely observed Jacob's work and understood what an asset this guy was. The second option, I think, is probably the correct one because in this verse he says that it was the Lord, Jehovah, who had blessed him because of Jacob. One truth which can be found here, right in this verse, is that worldly men like Laban are often the recipients and the blessings of other hardworking people around them. One thing they lack, though, but which Laban did figure out, is actually discerning where the blessings come from. In other words, and I'll give you an example, America has been abundantly blessed by the presence of Christians and Jews. There's no doubt about it. They're generally honest, they're generally hardworking, and they are the ones that keep society working properly. But as the years have gone by, the non-Christians in our society and the non-Jews have increasingly forgotten this precept. And the same is true with the land of Israel. It was a wasteland. It was a garbage heap for 2,000 years. There was nothing there at all. And if anybody doesn't know this, you can go and read the book Innocence Abroad by Mark Twain, and he'll describe the land of Israel about 60 years before the Jews moved back in. And he describes everything that he sees, and everything he sees is 
pitiful. There's nothing there. There's no life. There's no trees. There are a few select people. This thing about there being billions of Palestinians living there is not true. He documents how many people are in every town, including Jerusalem, and there are only 14,000 people in the area of Jerusalem. So the Jews move back into the land and they restore it to usefulness. And now that that has happened, the people that live around them want nothing other than to kick them out and to take what they have worked or earned through their own hard work. After the rapture of the church, the world is going to be left in a state of chaos and hopelessness. And for each area of the land of land that the Jews return to the Palestinians, that land is going to cease to be productive. We've already seen it with Gaza. It's going down and down and down since the Jews, Jewish presence has moved out. It's going to stop being beneficial to the people who have received from the Jewish people the houses and everything else that they put in there. All right. Now, when this happens, and it's going to happen, it's going to happen with the West Bank and the Gaza, and uh, I'm sorry, the West Bank and uh, Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem is going to be divided in two. And we don't need to guess about that because the Bible says it's going to happen. And when it happens, they're going to degrade the land very quickly. And the first thing that they're going to do is say, we want what they got. They got the better part. When in fact, it's all being blessed by the Jewish presence. And if they would simply realize that as Laban figured out, we wouldn't run into these problems, but we will. And the world is going to be judged because of it. Joel 3.1 says that to us. Anyway, verse uh, 28. Then he said, name me your wages and I will give it. Laban certainly knows the value of Jacob and he also knows the piety of Jacob. So when he says, name your wages and I will give it, he knows in advance that whatever Jacob asks for will be much less than what he's worth. He believes that he will come out on top by making this offer in the way he's making it to him. That brings us to our second thought today, which is my righteousness will answer for me. Verse 29, so Jacob said to him, you know how I've served you and how your livestock has been with me. In response to Laban's offer, Jacob first stands on his integrity before he does anything else. He will use this as a benchmark of his offer and of his request from Laban. He's asking Laban to reflect on the state of his wealth from the time that he arrived until the present time. This is the standard of the work that I gave you for your daughters. And this is what you can expect from me for something which will be of less value. He's basically saying that he could set any amount of wages and it would not harm Laban one little bit. He's resetting the tone to show that he has the upper hand in the negotiations and he continues to show it. Verse 30, for what you had before I came was little and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. Jacob's words here stand as a testimony of the truth that they convey. If what he said wasn't true, he couldn't make the claim. If I were to say to all of you right now that you know how hard I worked on the uh, sermons for the book of Exodus, you'd know that my words testify against me. We aren't in Exodus yet. It would be crazy for somebody to make a claim about something which is blatantly false to somebody that knows better. If I said, you know how many months it's taken for us to get to Genesis chapter 30, then my words actually testify to the truth of that matter. You have been here, or some of you have been here week after week, like Kelly Carlin over here, 72 sermons week after week, getting to the point that we're at today. Jacob uses two terms in this statement right here to verify that Laban's amassed wealth came through his hard work. The first term is yiprats, and it means broken forth. The flocks of Laban have increased so much that it is actually as if they have 
broken forth like a dam being released of its water. He then says, since my coming, and the word in Hebrew is leragli, it means at my foot. Since my foot came to your door, you have prospered even to the point of breaking forth. Now, if this wasn't true, he couldn't make the claim at all. He'd be refuted as a liar, but he won't be. When Jacob met Rachel at the well 14 years earlier, she tended a single flock. And this is probably all the flocks that Laban possessed at that time. And being a young girl, it probably was not a very big flock. It calls to mind the words of Jesus when speaking to the people of Israel who were faithful believers in Luke chapter 12. He said this, do not fear little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide for yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jacob is using his words prior to making his offer to show that it would be both fair and trustworthy. It is a claim of future results based on past performance. And I'm going to give you an example of this. I had very recently somebody uh, email me and they said, somebody that you know has applied for a job and I would like to know if they're trustworthy. And I got to tell you, I don't know this person's work personally. I've never worked with them. I've never seen their uh, productivity or anything else. But I do know that they are a faithful attendee of church. I know that they bring other people to church. I know that they uh, are strong in their posts on Facebook about giving the Lord credit for the things that uh, have happened in their life. And uh, because of that, I gave them a favorable recommendation. And I told them exactly those things. This person brings people faithfully to church. And I know that this person does. And uh, they uh, uh, are inviting other people. They're offering to help where they attend. And that is a claim of future results based on past performance, even when I don't know their work ethic. And so each one of us needs to evaluate our own position when we're making a, uh, a claim for employment or any other thing in the future. How are other people going to perceive me? Even if they don't know my own work ethic, they're gonna perceive me based on their attendance at church, by how faithful they are as a friend, and by all of these other things. And that is the life application that I would give you from this particular verse. Jacob is standing on his own integrity when he's making these negotiations. And we can do that for ourselves and for others as well. And that's what we should be doing and looking forward to. It'd be nearsighted to not do it, do so. Anyway, verse 30 continues. And now when shall I provide for my own house? Here, Jacob is saying, you know, I've been working for you for 14 years and I haven't earned anything for me. When am I gonna provide for my own house? Okay, Laban, you've set the wages and I've shown you my value. What I set will be exactly appropriate to the state that I'm in. I have four wives. Oh, my four wives. And I've got 12 children to take care of as well. When I give my price, it will have that in mind based on my past performance. Verse 31. So he said, what shall I give you? This is Laban saying it again to Jacob. Laban has heard Jacob's appeal. And he, his answer here proves everything Jacob just said. There's no note of denial. Laban's wealth has increased because of Jacob. He restates his offer. What shall I give you? Verse 31 continues. And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. Jacob's answer is definite. He doesn't want anything new and he doesn't want anything from Laban. 
Instead, what he's going to propose is something that is exceptional rather than expected. It will be hoped for as well as hard worked for. It will be uncertain and yet it will be unconditional. Verse 31 continues, if you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Although there's nothing you can give me, there is something that you can do for me that will keep me around. Albert Barnes, this great Bible scholar of past ages, notes that there's an elegance in the Hebrew right here. It says, Asuba ere sonecha eshmor. I will return, I will feed, I will keep thy flock. Jacob had already made up his mind to leave, and the permission that he asked was his note of resignation. To him, and thus to Laban, it was already done. And so from that point, you can see how the conversation has been a reinstatement rather than a renewal. Verse 32, let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all of the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. Jacob makes what would otherwise be an absolutely astonishing offer. He is proposing that all of the sheep that are speckled or spotted of the flock and all of the brown among the lambs and all of the speckled and the spotted of the goats be taken out. These were the unusual, not the norm. They are the rare occurrences. The usual colors would be white among the sheep and the goats would be either black or brown. Moreover, by taking out the usual ones, the ones that are left, which are unanimous or, or uh, you know, they're all the same color, will be more likely to breed and have offspring that will resemble them. So the norm would be to have more normal colors, not more unusual colors. Anything that was hereafter born from this point on will be out of the norm, and those would be his. Because the rare ones are taken out now, there would be none at all in his flock. It seems to be a very odd proposal and of little benefit to Jacob, but he knew what he was doing, either because God had told him so or because of his own experience from the past taking care of Laban's flocks and even his own flocks back in the land of promise. Only if something is abnormally colored is born in the future would it belong to Jacob. Everything else would be considered as Laban's. It is a deal which seems beyond imagination and Laban will be overjoyed at the prospect. Verse 33, so my righteousness, this is Jacob speaking, will answer for me in time to come when the subject of my wages comes before you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. By taking out the abnormally colored animals now, anything which is born abnormally in the future is going to testify to his own righteousness. It has been acquired by the hand of providence. Whatever God gives which is out of the normal will belong to Jacob. If nothing has the special mark, then God withheld the blessing from Jacob. If all of them are born with it, then God has blessed him. And every one of them which is born normal would be, as he terms himself, considered stolen. In other words, Laban could walk up at any moment and he could say, I'm taking this one, it's mine. To ensure that it was a deal beyond reproach, Jacob uses a phrase which means that the terms would be immediate. He says, in time to come, using the Hebrew word beyom, tomorrow. Any animal that is normally colored starting tomorrow is to be claimed as Laban's. The deal weighs so heavily 
in favor of Laban that he responds immediately and with joy that Jacob knew would come. And that leads us to our third and final thought today. Come out from among them and be separate. Verse 34, and Laban said, oh, oh, that it were according to your word. The deal is the most unbelievable stroke of luck that Laban has ever heard. So much so that he exclaims, oh, that it would be according to your word. He cannot believe that Jacob will live by what he's just said. To him, it is like getting Jacob for next to nothing. All of the odd colored flock are gonna be taken out and so none are left. All the normal colors will be his and they will be tended to by Jacob for nothing. And when mating season comes, all of these normally colored breed are going to supposedly produce more normally colored breed. None or very few of the offspring should come out odd colored. And so every new sheep and every new goat that comes will belong to him. They will all be tended to by Jacob for nothing. He's being handed a bar of gold on a platter of gold. And guess what? He gets, he gets to keep the platter as well. Verse 35, so he removed the day that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had some white in it, and all the brown ones among the lambs, and he gave them into the hands of his sons. It's Laban who removes the goats and gives them to his sons, not Jacob. Jacob's oldest son is only about seven years old. His name is Reuben. In other words, Jacob has deferred the separation to Laban. Not only was he fair in his offer, but he's making sure that Laban alone is in charge of the selection of the offer. This is basically the mother's wisdom, which allows one child to cut the cake and the other child to choose the piece that they want. By doing this, the one that is cutting is gonna use a magnifying glass to make absolutely sure that he gets exactly what he is supposed to get. Laban could not cheat himself, and so Jacob's flock is gonna be perfectly fair. After separating the colored ones, Laban gives them to his own sons to tend and keep. And there are now several flocks of Laban's. But God previously promised to bless the work and the increase of Jacob. Therefore, the offspring of Jacob's flocks, which God chooses and which involves Jacob's efforts, will come by the providence of God. Anything that comes will be the effort of Jacob and the providence of God. Verse 36, then he put three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. After taking out the flocks, which would otherwise benefit Jacob, Laban then puts a three day journey between them and Jacob's flocks. And by putting this distance between the two of them, there would be no chance of them meeting up and mixing. If they did, then the offspring of Jacob's flocks would be more likely to bear odd colored ones. Laban wants to make absolutely sure that this isn't going to happen. There's a separation between them. And so Jacob is now at the providence of God and his own resourcefulness to build up his house. Now that we've looked at the surface of this story, the historical and the cultural aspects of what has happened, we need to ask ourselves, why? Why is this story here? What is God trying to tell us? And what does he want us to see in this story? The answer is, as we see week after week after week, Jesus and the work of Jesus. Here's the light right here. This is, and I want you to know, to me, this is a very hard analysis to give. I have a, anybody in my family or anybody that knows me personally knows that I have a great love and a great respect for the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And I have an understanding of their importance in the future. However, 
There's something that I cannot deny. If they were obedient to God, as the Bible says in Leviticus chapter 26, they would not have been exiled, nor would they have been separated from him as a people. This is the blessing, and this is the curse of the people of Israel. What today's story is telling us is a picture of this, and a picture of the growth of the church during their time of exile. Jacob wanted to go back home, but it is not yet time for him to return. His time of exile is not yet complete. It's evident, though, that the people of the world, which is pictured by Laban, has been blessed by them. The presence of the people of God has been a blessing, and so he asks them to stay. Jacob has been in charge of Laban's flocks, and his flocks have grown. In order to stay, he sets his terms. All of the curiously marked animals are going to be his pay. All the others of them will belong to Laban. In the world of the Bible, as I said earlier, there are only two distinctions of people, Jew and Gentile. The Jews have a special mark or a distinction which separates them from the others. It's the sign of circumcision. Jacob, however, does not ask for them. In fact, he asks for them to be taken out of the flock that he tends. They cannot be a part of what he's proposing, and so they are separated by a distance of three days. However, their offspring, who bear the mark, will be his wages. The physical mark, though, is not the only thing that make them, makes them Jacob's, or all of them with the mark would be his. Rather, it is the ones which come by God's providence that are his. In this, then, we see the true people of God who bear his mark which is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks of that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Remember who originally showed up with Laban's flocks at the well when Jacob first arrived in Paddan Aram? It was Rachel. She pictures God's grace, not the law. Those who belonged to God before Jacob arrived were there by grace, just as those Jews who believed before Jesus' arrival stood by God's grace through faith not by observance of the law. And we know that because David violated the law and yet he stood by God's grace. Leah, who pictures the law, did not tend the flock because of her weak eyes, just as the New Testament explains the weakness of the law. The true mark belongs to either Jew or Gentile and it is one which allows them to become a part of the true flock of God. The others who came before are separated from the flock. These are those Jews with the external mark of circumcision, but not the internal mark of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jacob was going to leave, okay? He's staying under a new contract. His work for his wives is done. Likewise, Jesus' work was done. So a new contract, not a continuation of the old contract, comes into play, and that is the new covenant. This is going to be proven true because in the coming chapters, Laban is going to change Jacob's wages. In fact, it says he changed them 10 times. By doing this, it's going to prove that the outward mark is not what makes a person a part of the elect of God. As denominations, for example, add in works for salvation, or they take some precept from the law and they say, well, you know, you can't eat pork. The law says that. That removes them from being the true people of God. It doesn't change the promise or the providence of God. God is looking at the hearts of his people. He's looking at their spiritual condition, not on external works. Like the Jews who rejected Jesus, those who have the external mark, but not the true mark, the sealing of the Holy Spirit are separated from God. They are left to the world. 
And this is exactly what Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read you some verses from the New Testament. And this will take just a couple minutes to get through. But you'll see how these flocks are being pictured in Paul's writings in the book of Romans. It says first, chapter 2, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, meaning a Gentile, a non-Jew, if he fulfills the law, judge you, speaking to the Jew, uh, who even with your written code and your circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward and in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart in the spirit, not the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. After saying this, towards the end of chapter 3 of the book of Romans, he says this, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. As I said, you have an external mark, but that's not the only thing that makes them Jacob's flocks. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, he's of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The flocks of Laban are being pictured in these words of Paul right here. All of this is being pictured by the separation of these animals. The specially marked flocks come about by God's grace. The others which are marked, but only outwardly, have been removed from the grace of the true flock. Then this is true of Jew, who rejected Jesus, and it's true of Gentile, who sits in a church and does not have a heart for Jesus Christ. They're just going through the rote motions without having the internal mark which God has granted to the believer in Jesus Christ. This is seen in Romans chapter 9. What if God, wanting to show his wrath to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of his wrath, prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of Jews only, but also of Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. Think of the flocks that Jacob is tending. I'll call them my flocks that are not my flocks. And her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God all pictured in these little flocks that Jacob is tending to. This short story here actually takes an understanding of pretty much the entire Old Testament, I'm sorry, New Testament. But despite that, God is building a church. I'm sorry, I got a little choked up there. God is building a church of specially marked people, those marked with the Holy Spirit. They are the true spiritual descendants of the people of God, the people of Israel. A three-day journey was placed between the two, though, to keep them separate from the rest of Jacob's flock as he was building them up. And this is a picture of the separation of those who have the mark but are not gods and those who will have the mark and who are. Now, the question is, what is this three-day journey? Because every time you see a number in the Bible, God has put it in there for a reason. Every number, every word of God is pure. And he's telling us there's a three-day journey for a specific reason. And the answer is found in the book of Hosea. And it's also found in the writings of Paul in the New Testament. And believe it or not, in Luke chapter 2 as well. 
That three-day journey is included to show us the separation of the people of Israel from the church while God is working on building his church. Now, before I get to the book of Hosea, I wanna read you what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. Listen carefully, because people misunderstand that and they think, ah, oh, the Jews are out, Israel is out, and they're not. And here's what Paul says about that. I was speaking about mysteries earlier. This is one of Paul's mysteries. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. This is something that was not previously known and which people still don't quite get. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion, speaking to the church, don't be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, meaning the people of Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That means the church age. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There's a day coming in the future when a fountain of grace is gonna be opened again to the people of Israel. That's mentioned in the book of Zechariah. Anyway, there's a time when this is going to happen. And this is the point in history where we are at right now. And Hosea chapter six tells us this. Let me read this to you and listen. The three-day separation of these flocks is being prefigured and it's pointed to this time in human history. It says here in Hosea, come and let us return to the Lord. This is written to the Jewish people before the establishment of the church age. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain to the earth. Now that last verse there, speaking of the rains, can only happen at this time in history. Because when the Romans went in and exiled the Jewish people, back in AD 70, they cut down every tree in the land. The land was utterly barren. And what used to be a two rain cycle in Israel stopped. And they have not had the former and the latter rains for over 2,000 years in Israel because there were no trees to bring in the weather cycle. In the late 1800s and the early 1900s, the Jewish people moved back into the land and they started to plant trees. I've stood under trees that were planted a hundred and some years ago, which are massive. They're, they planted them around the swamps to drain the sw swamps and they got the sand out of the way so that the rivers could drain out into the, uh, the ocean. And they planted these trees and now the former and the latter rains have returned to the land of Israel. And it's saying that when this time in human history comes, that we will know that the Lord is coming and he is coming back to his people Israel. And it says it will happen after two days and he will revive them on the third day. The Bible says elsewhere that a day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Hosea is saying that the people who were removed from God's favor for disobedience will return to the Lord and that it would be after two days and on the third day. This is all pictured by the separation of these flocks Laban's flocks from Jacob's flocks. They are back in the land right now, these people, after two days or after 2,000 years, and it is the dawning of the third day. This is also reflected in the story of Jesus when he was a young boy. He was 12 years old. It's the only narrative that we have of his youth, and it's in Luke chapter 2. I'm sorry, Luke chapter, yes, Luke chapter 2, and here's what it says. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. 
When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Then he said to them, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Jesus never left the true Jerusalem. His people did, his family did, and they will return to him, not the other way around, and it will be on the third day. When they return to him, he will appear to them. Israel will be brought back into the graces of God and they will find him in the temple where he will reign for a thousand years, exactly as the Bible says in Revelation, exactly as it says. A final point about Israel. Although the flocks picture the people of God, they're still Jacob's children that are living in his home and they will picture Israel, the family and the focus of God in later sermons. So you want to understand the flocks are given as a picture of Israel and then as children later are going to do the same thing. So we're going to see these pictures continue as we go through the book of Genesis. Genesis, excuse me. I've been yelling so that you guys could hear me because of all the wind and I'm getting all dry here. But this is the continuing story of the work of Jesus Christ through the various groups of people and at various times in human history. These stories are given in Genesis to show us snippets of what he's going to do in the broader panorama of his work in the world. And I hope you will take the time to read the book of Romans and then compare it to this real short set of verses that we looked at today. And you will be able to see how these two stories actually fit so beautifully. If you keep thinking of the flocks, the flocks and what Jacob is doing and why did God show us this story? And we'll finish this particular picture next week. And when we do, you're gonna see these wonderful patterns of what God is doing through the church and through the Apostle Paul in an astonishing way. Now, I gotta tell you something. If you wanna be a part of the great unfolding story that God shows us in the Old Testament, he conceals it, and then he reveals it in the New Testament, it can be yours. You can come to be one of God's chosen flock, and it is by a mere act of faith in him and what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. And so I'd ask for just two more minutes before we give our closing verse as to uh, explain to you why Jesus came and what it means to you personally in case you've never understood this and comprehended it and taken it to heart. The Bible says that we were created. We talked about that before we got started. He created one man and his wife and they sinned. They fell and when they fell, all people were in that man at that moment. We were in him three ways, legally, potentially, and seminally. We are in Adam and we inherited his sin nature. And there's nothing that we can do to go back before that sin. We're in time and we're going forward. And if we try to go back, it's not gonna happen. And so something else needs to happen externally from outside of time in order to reconcile us back to God. And that is Jesus Christ. God came in the stream of time that he created and he united with humanity in a virgin's womb. That means that he did not inherit Adam's sin because sin transfers through the father, not the mother. All people on earth are born of a father with the exception of one man, Jesus Christ. 
That's the reason why God gave them the covenant of circumcision, is to show that it's cutting away the sin nature. It's a picture of what he was going to do in the virgin birth. So here is Jesus born without sin, and now he's living among a world full of sinful people, and yet he never engaged in the sin that he saw happening around him. Instead, he prevailed over that. He fulfilled the law that Moses gave. He lived it perfectly. And then he did something that is more astonishing than anything else that we could ever imagine. He said, I'm going to take my righteousness, what I have done, and I'm gonna exchange it for your unrighteousness. And he stretched his arms out and he went to the cross and he died. And God says, if you will accept what he has done, I will move you from your father, Adam, to my son, Jesus. And you will go from being unrighteous to being justified in my presence. And it's done by his mere act of faith. Old Testament and new, every single person that is saved is saved by an act of faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. The Jew that went down to Jerusalem on the day of atonement had to have faith that the animal was taking care of his sins. And it only pictured the coming sacrifice of Jesus. Their faith was in something that they could not comprehend. And then Jesus did those things. And the New Testament explains that to us, that through Christ, you can have a new life and a new hope and a new direction. So if you have never accepted the work of Jesus Christ, I would ask you to consider that, to call on him, to believe in your heart that God really can reconcile you to him and lead you to a place of perfection without sin, walking on streets of gold for all of eternity. It's yours by calling on Jesus. Please make the right decision. Our closing verse today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a little bit after our text verse. It says there, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Next week, as I said, we're gonna go through Genesis 30, verses 37 through 43. It's entitled, Peeled Rods in the Watering Trough. If you've ever seen the story, it's where Jacob takes these rods and he pulls off the bark from them and he puts them in a watering trough and all of a sudden unusual animal colors start popping out and he builds this great flock out of animals standing in front of a watering trough looking at peeled rods and that pictures the work of Paul writing the New Testament it's it's astonishing so I hope you'll be here for that if not you can watch it on YouTube uh, next Sunday afternoon or next Monday morning or whenever I get it uploaded I'll tell you this the Lord has you exactly where he wants you and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So I would ask that you would call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. One more thing before we take communion. Every week I do a poem based on the verses of the Bible that we analyzed. And today's poem is called To Build a Flock. It came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph, you see, that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my country. It's time for me to go, yes, this very day. Give me my wives and my children too for whom I have served you and let me go. For you know my service, my work for you, which I have accomplished. Yes, you know. And Laban said to him, please stay. If I have found favor in your eyes, spare me this ache. For I have learned by experience until this day that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. And now, when shall I provide for my own house? So he said, what shall I give you? Not another spouse. And Jacob said, nothing to me you shall give. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed, your, feed and keep your flocks as they live. Let me pass through all your flock today as you watch closely. We will remove from there all the speckled and the spotted sheep, this we will do, and all the brown ones among the lambs, and the spotted and speckled among the goats too. 
These shall be my wages, so my righteousness will answer for me. In time to come and in the Bible's pages, the subject of my wages will be plain to see. Everyone that is not speckled or spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen, yes, ill-gotted, if it is with me under the care of my hands. And Laban said, oh, that it were according to your word. I simply cannot believe the thing that I've just heard. He removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted. All the female goats that were this way he took also. Everyone that had some white in it from the flock he gotted, and all the brown ones among the lambs, they all had to go. And he gave them into the hand of his sons. Then he put himself between himself and Jacob three days journey. And Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks, the remaining ones. It was a very fairly rendered deal, as you can plainly see. This story shows us of God's true elect, those who are separated and sealed with the Spirit. It was by God's grace that he did select, and by faith in him we received this gift by Christ's merit. And so we cannot boast in our state before God, but only be thankful in uprightness should we trod. We to our God alone shall give all our praise, and on streets of gold we shall honor him for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for getting us through this service without anything blowing over or falling on anybody's head. And uh, we appreciate the fact that you've allowed us to meet in this beautiful spot and to just rejoice in your word and to uh, share in your goodness. And I would ask that each person here, you would take care of them in the week ahead, lead them home safely, and just, uh, just bless them so that they know that the blessing came from you and that they'll turn around and give you the thanks and the praise and the honor that you're due because of that. And in all things, let us, let us give you that thanks, especially for the gift of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.